guys. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee that you only get to drink once, you'll gain unlimited access to members-only episodes. But in addition to these bonus episodes, you also get to walk away with the satisfaction of knowing that you are directly helping to sustain the output of this show. Based on the current monthly listenership, if everyone contributed just a dollar a month, that would give me more than enough support to literally just focus on producing this show. And that would be awesome. I just posted the latest contributors-only episode on Patreon, and as promised, it picks up where we left off in our episode on Tyrant with a textual analysis of Sophocles' play Oedipus the King. Here's a taste of what the contributors are listening to. Oedipus the King is obviously not the play's original title. It's a translation that comes from the Latin Oedipus Rex. Rex is the Latin word for king. But hold on a second. Oedipus the King is a Greek play, and the Greeks spoke Greek, not Latin. So what was the play originally called in Greek? It was called Oedipus Tyrannos, which of course literally, but not accurately, translates into English as Oedipus the Tyrant. So if you found that tantalizing, go to patreon.com slash words for granted to find out more. You can also find a link to my Patreon on my website, wordsforgranted.com. Just click contribute. Thanks to Alex and Chris for their recent contributions. And one more thing before we begin. Since I've started this podcast, I've consistently received emails criticizing my pronunciation of a certain word. That word is, some of you already know what's coming, get ready for it, Latin. Apparently, I should be pronouncing this word as Latin. The general theme of these emails is, I love the show, but you've got to put the T back in Latin. So, for those of you who cringe every time I say Latin, here's your big moment. Latin. 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 Okay, now let me offer a defense of why I say, and probably will continue to say, Latin. I grew up in New Jersey, about 25 minutes outside of New York City, and at the moment I live in Providence, Rhode Island, and on behalf of most speakers of English living in the northeastern United States, I can say that we drop a lot of our T's, but not all of them. We tend to drop T's when they're at the end of words, as in feet or wheat, and when they're followed by M and N sounds, as in mountain, written, and Latin. Somehow, no one ever wrote in to complain about the way I've pronounced other words with this phonological feature, but Latin is somehow a source of controversy. I mean, I get it. 
Latin is the mother of the Romance languages, and something like three-quarters of the English lexicon is Latinate, but that's just not the way I say it. I say Latin. This particular kind of dropping the T is called a glottal stop, more specifically, T-glottalization. A glottal stop is defined as a consonant formed by the audible release of the airstream after a complete closure of the glottis, the glottis being the opening between your vocal folds. Of course, no one does this consciously. It's just a feature of certain accents. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get on to today's show. Today's episode is part one in a two-part miniseries on dramatic theater. This week, we'll be looking at tragedy, and next week, we'll be looking at comedy. The stories of these two words greatly overlap because, as some of you may know, they both originated in the ancient Greek theater. The theme for this miniseries was inspired by my research for the latest Patreon episode on Oedipus, which, of course, is one of the most well-known ancient Greek tragedies. I had so much fun revisiting the play and the topic of Greek theater in general that I found myself digging into it a little deeper, and here we are now. Today, the word tragedy still maintains its original theatrical meaning. Any form of drama based on human suffering belongs to the genre of tragedy. But most of the time when we use this word, unless you happen to be a drama teacher by profession, we are not talking about theater. Generally speaking, a tragedy is an event causing great suffering, destruction, or distress. This might refer to a serious accident, a crime, a natural disaster, basically anything that's really bad, as if you didn't know that already. This modern general sense of the word tragedy is in fact not a modern development. It's been in use in English since the 14th century. Our common sense of the word represents a classic case of what's called semantic broadening. Semantic broadening is the term that linguists use to describe when a word goes from having a specific meaning to a more generalized meaning. In the case of tragedy, the sense of human suffering specifically portrayed in this genre of what was originally Greek theater was more generally applied to everyday life. Now, in the same way that the meaning of tragedy has broadened from the theater to everyday life, its meaning has also broadened within the context of theater itself. If you think that a tragedy play is simply a play where bad stuff happens, well, fundamentally, you are correct. This is the fundamental characteristic of tragedy. But let's compare this generic definition to the one given by Aristotle in his work Poetics. Aristotle defines tragedy as, quote, an imitation of an action that is serious, complete, and of a certain magnitude, in language embellished with each kind of artistic ornament, the several kinds being found in separate parts of the play, in the form of action, not of narrative, through pity and fear affecting the proper purgation of these emotions, end quote. If this definition seems overly dense and simultaneously more specific and more vague than 
a play where bad stuff happens, it is. Scholars have written countless essays trying to explain exactly what Aristotle meant in this single passage alone. In the foreword to my copy of Poetics, Francis Ferguson takes seven pages, seven whole freaking pages, to explain exactly what the connotation of the word action means in this context. In Aristotle's jargon, theatrical action is not a deed, an event, or even a physical activity, but more like, quote, the manifestation and gradual working out of a psychological motive, end quote. When Aristotle says language embellished with each kind of artistic ornament, what he's talking about is language that alternates between sung lyrics and spoken dialogue composed according to the various metrical conventions of Greek poetry. And when he says the proper purgation of these emotions, he's talking about an immense cathartic feeling that stems from empathy and recognition of universal human nature. Aye. We could continue decoding this definition word by word, but I'm not going to do that because A, that's a little above my pay grade, and B, it'll take all day and that's not the point I'm trying to get across. For our purposes here, all you need to take away from this definition is that when Aristotle defines tragedy, he's not defining every form of tragedy that ever was and ever will be, but rather the particular form of tragedy that was invented by and culturally valued by the Greeks. If that seems like common sense to you, great. But when some of us see the word tragedy defined by someone like Aristotle, it's easy to think, oh, Aristotle, He's an old smart guy who knew everything, so he must know exactly what a tragedy is supposed to be. But wait a second. Romeo and Juliet doesn't have a singing chorus and isn't composed in Greek poetical meter, so does that mean it's not actually a tragedy? Well, of course it's still a tragedy, just a tragedy produced by a different culture in a different time period in a completely different language. Ultimately, the point I'm trying to make here is that literary genres, like individual words, change over time. If you read an 18th century novel like Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, for example, the diction, style, and structural conventions are going to be completely different from those of a modern novel like Infinite Jest. But they are both certainly novels. They just represent different points on an ever-changing continuum of a single art form. The same is true of Greek tragedy in relation to other forms of tragedy that were developed later in history. Okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about the genre of tragedy, let's talk about its etymology. Given the content of tragedy plays, you might expect it to be etymologically connected to words for suffering or despair, but that's not even close. According to the most common theory, the Greek word tragoidia is a compound word comprising tragos, meaning goat, and oide, meaning song. In other words, tragedy literally means goat song. But why? The answer to this question requires a bit of context. 
The genre of dramatic tragedy, and for that matter, dramatic theater generally speaking, evolved as part of an annual religious festival to the god Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, and, by no coincidence, theater. We'll talk more about the raucous nature and origins of the Dionysian festivals in next week's episode on comedy. By the 5th century BCE, tragedy had emerged as a fully mature art form, and Athens, like many other Greek city-states from the time period, began holding annual competitions for poetry, music, and theater in conjunction with their Dionysian festival. So here's where the etymology comes from. The prize for the first-placed winner of the Athenian tragedy competition was a live billy goat. As a side note, I'd like to add that the first ever winner of the tragedy competition was a man named Thespis, which is the root of the word thespian, meaning a theater actor or actress, or more broadly, relating to drama or theater. Anyway, after the Dionysian festival was over, it's likely that these goats would have been sacrificed and that the sacrifices were accompanied by songs of lament. Thus, tragedy plays became associated with goat songs. However, the song part of its etymology may have come from the simple fact that certain sections of tragedy plays were sung as lyrics. Another interpretation of the goat song etymology claims that the word comes from actors who, during the earliest performances of tragedy, would have dressed up as satyrs. This is the theory put forth by Nietzsche in The Birth of Tragedy. Satyrs are a kind of mythical creature found in both Greek and Roman mythology who were part man, part beast. Often, that beast was a goat. But here's the catch. The popular notion of the half-man, half-goat satyr comes from Roman depictions of the creature. The Greeks also depicted satyrs this way, but only during the Hellenic period, which traditionally begins with the death of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE. Prior to this time, the Greeks depicted satyrs as half-man, half-horse creatures. Since the origins of Greek tragedy are dated to the 5th century BCE, I find this satyr-derived etymology somewhat dubious. Don't forget that when working in years BCE, you count backwards from zero, so the logical chronology here is off by a century. An early refutation of the goat song theory comes from Athenaeus Naucratus. Naucratus lived between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE, and he suggested that the earlier form of the word trogoidia was in fact trugoidia. Trugos was the Greek word for grape harvest, and since wine is made from grapes and tragedy plays were performed at a festival honoring Dionysus, who was the god of wine, this is certainly plausible. However, we have no extant texts that attest this hypothetical original form or offer further commentary on it, so we have no way of proving or disproving Athenaeus Nocratus's alternative theory. Okay, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with a discussion of comedy, so keep your eyes peeled. As always, 
Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Words for Granted, and I'm on Facebook as Words for Granted. If you want to reach me directly, my email is wordsforgranted at gmail.com. And if you love the show, please spread the word and leave a positive rating and review on iTunes. Those iTunes reviews are the number one way of getting more people on board with the show. All right. See you next time. Have a great day.